Good morning, Cornerstone. My name is John Inzer. I know it's not who you expected to see today, um, but I'm thankful that I get a chance to share with you and uh, be with you um, on this Sunday. Uh, I'm an instructor uh, up the road in Bartlesville at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. We love Cornerstone, um, everything that you all stand for as a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Our teaching text for today is Ephesians 1, 15 through 21. And the text reads like this. For this reason, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised them from the dead and seated them at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. I think all of us know what it's like to have moments in our lives where we feel that we're stuck in a rut. uh, Moments in life where things feel monotonous. It's the same thing over and over again. Maybe life feels like we're in a bit of a holding pattern. I know for many of us, the year 2020 jumps to mind immediately. After I finally was able to return to campus in the fall, one of my students that I knew well asked me, so how is your spring break going? And I said, oh, well, for the most part, the spring break's been pretty good. And I happily wished him uh, a joyful March 97th. Um, For a lot of us, 2020 has been a year in which we feel like we're stuck in some version of Groundhog Day. Everything uh, happens just the same day after day. We find ourselves Uh, stressed about the same things, not seeing the people that we love, and we wish that there was some sort of fresh perspective out there in the world, some way in which we could see our problems differently, find new energy to deal with those struggles and those problems, have some empowerment or assurance about what to do next. Whether or not 2020 has been that sort of experience for you, I think all of us know a little bit about what it's like to be locked into the same things, the the same shows, the same websites, going to the same restaurants, having the same conversations about the same problems, and feeling, in fact, that we have the same ideas about how to address those problems. We wish for new insight, new perspective, and new energy. When I was a kid, I um, loved a lot of different types of music. I'm from the suburbs in Oklahoma, so naturally Garth Brooks was on the playlist. But I also loved hip-hop and rap. And I think in the 90s was something of the golden age of the hip-hop and rap era. But it was also a time of struggle between two sort of perspectives on really what constituted authentic rap and hip-hop music. It was the great rap battle between East Coast and West Coast. And so the West Coast was represented by Death Row Records run by Suge Knight. And the East Coast was represented by Bad Boy Records and Sean Puff Daddy Combs. The the struggle wasn't just simply uh, represented in the lyrics, but actually manifested in real violence. And it was into this sort of scenario that New Testament scholar, scholar Esau McCauley talks about an award show in 1995 called the Sorcerer Awards. It was held in New York City 
It was about recognizing and honoring the best in hip-hop and rap music as, as the genre was sort of coming into its own. Um, Macaulay sort of sets the scene and says, because it was in New York City, uh, the crowd was, was decidedly pro-East Coast. And so anytime somebody won an award from the East Coast, everyone there from the West Coast, uh, if, when anyone won an award from the East Coast, everyone in the auditorium cheered, except for the few people from the West Coast. When it was the opposite and somebody from the West Coast won an award, then everybody in the crowd booed, except for the few lone West Coast voices. And as the night progressed, it went to sort of these climactic awards. And so when they announced the award for Best New Artist, it was a, it was a shock. It was not an East Coast artist, it was not a West Coast artist, but a new group from Atlanta called Outcast. And since they didn't fit the paradigm of East Coast or West Coast in this entrenched battle, uh, one of the more eccentric members of Outcast named Andre 3000 got up. And... Uh, to a chorus of boos, he said, you know, it's like this. I'm tired of folks, close-minded folks. It's like we make a mixtape and nobody wants to hear, but it's like this. The South's got something to say. And he drops the mic and he leaves. I think for a lot of us, we find ourselves stuck in sort of our binaries of right and left, East Coast and West Coast, and we long for a voice that comes from somewhere else that has something else, in fact, to say. When I think of Paul's great prayer that he opens for his community in Ephesus, that's really, in fact, what he's getting at. He is praying for fresh insight and fresh energy and for renewal of perspective so that his, this community of his friends can live in life-giving and fresh ways and kind of get unstuck from their holding pattern or for their limited perspective. Now, Paul's prayer that he offers for his friends here really contains three basic things. One, he prays that they would have insight into the hope in which they've called, the glorious riches that are in fact their inheritance, and the great power that is in fact available to them who believe in the Messiah. So when we read these things, we naturally, as, as readers of Paul, are just very interested in thinking about, well, what, what are these things? What is this hope? And what are these riches that are tied to this inheritance that we have in the Messiah? And, and even more so, we're very interested in this notion of power. How do we live in, in, in this power that, in fact, Paul is, is referencing? In another part of reading the text, we would also sort of think about, well, if Paul's talking about hope and inheritance and, and power that's really tied to the resurrection of the Messiah, then, then surely these things lay out there in the ideal future. But this is not really the case. When Paul opens up his prayer, he actually opens up with this language for this reason. And these types of introductions... Um, uh, can oftentimes seem insignificant. But in fact, when we think about the text that John preached from last week, Paul, in fact, is celebrating a whole host of things that he already has in the Messiah. He actually talks about obtaining that he and uh, his workers, those people that are really devoted to setting up these Jesus communities all over the Mediterranean Rim, they've already obtained this inheritance the mysteries of God and the Messiah have already been made known to them. And so when Paul opens up this sort of language, opens up his prayer with this sort of language for this reason, 
Paul's not talking about some ideal future for his audience, somewhere out there, you know, when things get better, when life turns out the way that it should. Uh, perhaps oftentimes in American evangelicalism, we think about uh, after death and sort of post-mortem realities, going to heaven when we die. This is not what Paul's praying for. He's praying that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened, that they may know about the hope to which they have been called, the riches of this glorious inheritance and uh, glorious inheritance in the Messiah, and the power, in fact, that they have, not out in the future, but actually right there in their present. And so this is how Paul really begins to frame so much, in fact, of his letter. Public prayers are always kind of awkward and uncomfortable, especially if you haven't been raised in the church. There can oftentimes be this sort of um, force uh, or, or sense in which we have to speak in a certain way if we're praying in church or we're praying at the table. I know that my young sons, when we have guests over and it's their turn to pray, oftentimes can measure their words. Public prayers in some ways sort of reveal things or tell stories about people and sort of situate them in environment. So I think a little bit about um, Meet the Parents and Ben Stiller's character Greg, who finds himself at a table where he has to pray in front of his uh, soon-to-be in-laws. And the awkwardness of the prayer totally gives away that Greg does not belong in this situation, and it really ends up foreshadowing what in fact is going to take place in the rest of the movie. Or you can think of uh, perhaps even more ridiculous example of, of Ricky Bobby praying uh, to sweet Lord baby Jesus in uh, Talladega Nights. Um, again, it's just this example in which we begin to see sort of a character or some sort of central uh, understanding of this character within, within uh, the story. Obviously, you can tell I'm into uh, fine art and uh, fine film. Um, but this is also a little bit of what, how best we can understand Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is like a roadmap to what it is that he is wanting to share. It will, in fact, be hints in his way of winking at the audience as to what, in fact, he is going to be talking about. And so we can speculate all we want about what is this hope and what is this inheritance and what is this power that is like... God raising the Messiah, Jesus, from the dead that is apparently available to us, not in the distant future, but now. But really, Paul's just simply setting us up for what it is that he's going to say. And so Paul will speak in three simple movements. Here, he will talk about Jesus as king. Then he will talk about the enemies that God has vanquished and conquered in Jesus becoming king. And then finally, he'll talk about a building project that he uses with this glorious riches from this victory that Christ has accomplished in the world. And so this is really the only way that we can truly know what it is that Paul is really praying for his audience and by extension um, us, those distant uh, brothers and sisters to our ancient uh, spiritual relatives. And so what the line that Paul really was going to develop is this notion of power. And he will talk about Jesus having been murdered and raised from the dead, that he is seated at the right hand of the Messiah, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, both in this age and the age to come. Paul is using language of conquest and victory. And so Paul's big idea that he wants to share is that Jesus is king. 
He's the rightful king of the world. And while this is a challenging thing to understand, how does somebody who is murdered, in fact, claim victory? Paul's big understanding, his main point, is that God has reversed this sentence and a real and surprising victory has happened in the world. This has led to new realities. And if you were going to be a person like Paul, you would have to then make an argument about, well, who is it that he has defeated or conquered, in fact, to be installed as the world's rightful and true Lord? And this is exactly what Paul does. He lays out a hit list of those things, those people that in fact the death and resurrection of the Messiah has resulted in sort of the conquest, the way in which um, this moment in history has led to sort of the vanquishing of certain enemies. And this is where Paul gets the language of power and authority and rule and dominion. In chapter 2, he'll actually nuance this a bit and talk about a figure known as the prince of the power of the air. And in chapter 6, he'll talk about rulers of this present evil. What's interesting about Paul is he doesn't sort of outline specific individuals. And while this language that Paul uses, in fact, sounds political, what Paul's not talking, Paul's not talking about corrupt politicians. But Paul is, in fact, using stock phrases, Jewish phrases that emerge from the first century. That's really about what some, something that theologians refer to as the powers. These are the forces that corrupt and ruin God's good uh, world. They inhibit the full human life that God wants to have for his people. And they abuse and corrupt not only individual human life, but infect and affect all sorts of human institutions. This is the language for Paul, not only of individual evil, but of broad corporate evil that sort of spreads its way through all sorts of layers of human life. And so Paul's idea is that in Jesus becoming king, in him vanquishing opponents, Jesus is not far above everything in the sense of being aloof or detached, but in fact he is superior to, he has defeated these realities. And now Paul, perhaps a little bit unlike some of his Jewish contemporaries, isn't interested in talking about who these figures are and where they are. Are they behind every corner? Do we have to be afraid of them every time we cross an intersection? Paul's big understanding is not who these figures, forces, powers, and all of these things are, but what in fact they do. And so Paul will quickly begin to move and talk about the ways in which these powers affect and destroy and inhibit the full life that God has for his people. The first thing that Paul will say is that these vanquished powers, um, they trap people into their uh, subhuman, destructive appetites. Paul will say this, And you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked. It is these powers that, in fact, entrap people into all of these sorts of self-destructive ways of living, uh, addictions, whatever, in fact, it might be. Paul's concept is that Jesus has vanquished the powers that keep people entrapped and enslaved and, in fact, has won freedom for people so that they don't have to live in these types of ways anymore. Now, this may be what we're most familiar with when we think about how we think as Christians and how we think about the nature of evil, but Paul will go on even further. And the second thing that he's going to say in chapter 2 is that these evil forces, these powers that corrupt 
uh, so much of human life are not just simply interested in human appetites and corrupting them and leading people into sort of these self-destructive behaviors sort of off of a cliff. These powers and forces are also going to be responsible for the very institutions and attitudes that contribute to ethnic tension, group violence, where groups are oppressing one another, and what we would be, uh, what we would be most familiar in thinking and talking about, racism. And so Paul will make this announcement that, in fact, in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, he has freed humans not only from impulses and appetites that lead to all sorts of uh, loss of, of rich and meaningful life that God has for the world, but also the types of attitudes and institutions that lead to uh, racism and abuse. And so Paul will actually say this, that the death of Christ, Christ died that he might reconcile us both, two races, Jew and Gentile, to him through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's an incredibly powerful um, text in which the, the notion for Paul is that Jesus's conquest has led to freedom, not only from individuals to lead and to walk into new lives, but to be saved for a brand new type of community, a multiracial, multinational community that's learning to live under the reign of this Messiah. And so these are Paul's two big ideas. Jesus is the Messiah. The vanquished powers have been defeated, and now people can walk in liberty, both in their individual conduct as God shows them and empowers them into a new way of life, and God empowers them into a new type of community where prejudice and abuse and oppression can be addressed, and the truth can be told, and new and fresh community can begin. And then in the ancient world, if you were going to say that you, were, you knew somebody who was a king and that they had vanquished an opponent, the expectation would be that they build something. And this is where Paul is actually going to go. With the riches of the glorious inheritance that comes in the Messiah, Paul will say this. We are uh, his workmanship. Or as in fact, uh, older translations would say, um, we are his masterpiece. Ultimately, we would ask this question, so what is, what is Jesus building with that glorious inheritance and that power that has come from this victory? As we keep reading, we find out what it is. Um, at the end of chapter 2, Paul will say that, that we are a temple to the Lord. And he'll say, you too are being uh, built into a place where God dwells by his spirit. And so this is, in fact, Paul's big idea. The king who has vanquished the powers and freed people is, in fact, building them together to be this picture of what God is like. In the ancient world, um, architecture told a story. It was oftentimes buildings were built by those who won in life, those who had vanquished opponents. And the whole notion was the very architecture itself was to tell a story of what it looked like to win. And so Paul imagines that, in fact, those freed by the Messiah, those empowered to live differently, the riches of that glorious inheritance are, in fact, building a new community of people, those who are being put back together and those who are, in fact, being saved for a new community, a community that pushes back and deals with issues of prejudice and abuse and oppression 
and in fact says that a new day is dawned. And so when we think about the very notion of why we join together, whether virtually in this setting or on the lawn or in any other sort of setting as believers, when we get together, we are the visible proclamation of what it means for the powers to be vanquished and for Jesus to be king. And the two great visualizations, the two great um, pictures of what it looks like for Jesus to be king in the world, for him to rule over all of those powers and rule and authority and dominion, is for us to experience ourselves being put back together again and for us to reconcile socially and racially as a group of people. This is the proclamation that in fact the tomb is empty and that in fact there is another way to live. For I think a lot of us, uh, 2020 has been a year of being stuck in a holding pattern where we wish we could see life from a new perspective. Perhaps with that holding pattern, we delay our hope into sort of that ultimate future. We, uh, or maybe it's even the more immediate future. We're hoping for the election to turn out a certain way, hoping that in fact maybe some of the tension in society will finally die down. Maybe we're waiting for a vaccine or maybe we're just simply waiting for 2021, hoping that the change in calendar will lead to sort of new things. Makes me sort of remember a little bit of where Paul, the context in which Paul's writing this letter. He is in in prison. He's in sort of the ultimate holding pattern in life where everything is on hold, where everything seems to be delayed. And yet his message to his good friends in Ephesus is that this hope to which we've been called this glorious inheritance that is to be the Ephesians uh, at any, uh, in the Messiah, and this great power that's available for those of us who believe is not to be delayed, not delayed in when Paul gets out of prison or when a vaccine is developed or when the election happens or when 2021 happens. It's power that is, in fact, available right here, right now, to transform people, to transform character, to put us as people back together again. And for us to do the hard and challenging work of reconciling across ethnic and racial lines. And we become this visible proclamation that right here in the middle of 2020, there is in fact power and riches and hope. With that, would you pray with me? God, our prayer is just simply that of Paul. That you may give us here at Cornerstone in 2020 the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you, that we might have the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we may know this hope to which we have been called, that we might know the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the immeasurable greatness of the power towards those of us who believe in you. We thank you, God, for that great power that is, in fact, wherever we find ourselves today, in our frustration and in our failures, we acknowledge that that power that raised the Messiah from the dead is putting us back together again. And God, as we find ourselves in just an incredibly challenging time in society where we oftentimes see our world stuck as we ourselves feel stuck, We thank you for the power of the Messiah that not only puts us back together, but leads us into the hard but rich work of reconciling. We know that you've saved us not only from our sins, but you've saved us for 
this multiracial, multinational community that tells the story that there is, in fact, another way to live. We pray, God, that that hope and those riches and that power would be, in fact, something that we know we can experience now in 2020, and that through that, we can be a proclamation to, the, to our neighbors and to one another that, in fact, uh, the tomb is empty and that your new world is beginning right here, right now, um, in our world. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.